1: I like our changing world Nam mihi nui, ko Alison Balance tēne It's great to be back with another episode of Our Changing World Tonight's going to be a little different as it's going to be all podcast for all the show Later on we'll have more of the Avian Banquet that is the Kākāpō Files podcast But first up Last week I launched another very different podcast, Elemental. Elemental is essentially a year-long 150th birthday party for the Periodic Table of Elements. I suspect you're all very well aware that it's the international year of the Periodic Table, and Professor Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology and I decided that, along with Brian Crump on Friday nights, we would celebrate. In Elemental We are tackling the chemical elements alphabetically, and tonight I thought I'd share with you a couple of the first episodes which cover rather obscure elements whose names start with A. But first, a quick intro into how clever the Russian chemist Dmitri Mendeleev was when he came up with the periodic table. I'm a zoologist, so I tend to think of things in terms of the tree of life and, you know, the tree of life helps categorize things in nature. So in a sense, the periodic table is to chemistry what the tree of life is to nature, isn't it? But when Mendeleev was putting it together, did he have a complete jigsaw puzzle? Did he have all of those 118 pieces and he could go, OK, now I just have to arrange them to make the picture?
2: Oh, no, not, not even close. And I guess that was part of the great genius of Mendeleev is that he was <laughs> sort of working with an incomplete deck, if you will. At the time that he published the periodic table, just over 60 elements were known. And he's got these chemical elements, and he's trying to make sense of them. He's trying to put them in some sort of order. And he eventually sort of puts them in orders that relate to their chemical reactivity, how similar they react to each other. And he found that sort of groups of three elements would sort of tend to behave very, very similarly. So he he grouped them together, and eventually he sort of figured out that if he did this for a whole lot of elements, he would end up with his version of the periodic table, which compared to our ones today is, is woefully incomplete, I guess.
1: So he left gaps, but we have filled those gaps in And Was he right with those gaps?
2: Yes, he was. And again, the, the absolute genius of the man, he recognised that not all of the elements had yet been discovered. And the way he did it was that he figured that there were going to be gaps in his periodic table where unknown elements should be. And so he said, right, well, I'm going to leave a gap here because I realise that this element hasn't yet been discovered. It will be one day. And what he could do from his version of the periodic table was to make remarkably accurate predictions as to the properties of these unknown elements. And this, this was really quite extraordinary. The first chemical element, alphabetically speaking, was one of those missing elements, actinium. It's got a symbol AC, Atomic number 89, which then puts it down towards the bottom of the periodic table.
1: I've never actually heard of it, but I gather that this is going to be a story of an element that actually owes its existence to other elements.
2: Yes, indeed. It's to do with the fact that this element is a radioactive element, and so it's being continually formed and it continually disappears at the same time.
1: Ooh, I look forward to hearing more about that. So, actinium, that's a bit of a strange name. How did it get its name, and what does it mean?
2: So like many elements on the periodic table, it derives from Greek, and this is the Greek word actus, which means a beam or a ray. And when was it discovered? This was 1899, and it was discovered by a French guy by the name of André-Louis De Bien.
1: Ah, très bien.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and he was lucky enough to be a co-worker of two very, very famous chemists, Pierre and Marie Curie. And they were famous for isolating two elements that we're going to be talking about later on, polonium and radium. They sifted through a tonne of a material called pitch blend, and from that they isolated milligrams of both polonium and radium. Dubien did a very similar thing. He used the same material, the pitch blend, and went through the whole rigmarole himself, And from that, he ended up again isolating milligrams of this new element, which was called actinium, for the fact that it gave off rays and was radioactive.
1: So this idea that it's being formed and continually disappearing, tell me a bit more about that. You know, what sort of time frame is that happening over
2: in order to understand this, we need to introduce a couple of concepts. Firstly, a thing called a half-life. Then, What's a
1: half-life then?
2: <laughs> the time that it takes for half of a radioactive sample to disappear. And then in the next half-life, another half of the remainder will disappear, etc., etc., etc. Until after around about 10 or so half-lives, pretty much all of the particular radioactive sample will have disappeared. So some elements have very, very long half-lives, things like uranium, millions of years. Some elements have very, very short half-lives of literally seconds or even parts of seconds. Actinium is sort of uh, what we would call a short half-life. The longest-lived isotope of actinium has got a half-life of 21 years. What's an isotope? Isotopes are atoms that have got the same number of protons in their nucleus, but different numbers of neutrons in the nucleus.
1: So they're like different flavours of it.
2: Yeah, indeed. Yeah, you may have heard of radioactive dating, for example, which we will talk about. That involves an isotope of uh, carbon, carbon carbon-14, which has got two more neutrons in the nucleus than uh, the normal carbon-12 isotope.
1: Now, I'm just wondering, if if we've got something that's constantly disappearing over 21 years, then there's only half as much, and then there's half as much again. So that's that disappearing act
2: of it. Does this mean that it actually isn't very common? Yes, it does. It is formed from the decay of heavier elements, so either uranium or thorium, and those elements are relatively long-lived. They've got very long half-lives. They undergo decay very, very slowly, and then they form actinium, and then actinium decays very, very quickly. That means that in terms of uh, its overall abundance on planet Earth... It's around about 5 or 6 by 10 to the minus 10 parts per million, which is an absolutely tiny, tiny, tiny amount. So does it have any practical uses for us at all? Well, the fact that all of its isotopes are radioactive really does limit its use. However, it has got potential for use in cancer therapy. If we can target that radioactivity perhaps to cancerous human cells or to tumours, then we could use radioactivity for good. We have a branch of medicine called nuclear medicine, which is solely involved with this sort of stuff. And there's one isotope of actinium that has a potential anyway to be used in a thing called targeted alpha particle therapy, or TAT for short. And what they do is to take the radioactive isotope and and encapsulate it in a nanoparticle, which, as the name suggests, is really, 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 really small. And this nanoparticle is chemically inert, so it's not harmful to the body. What we then do is take this nanoparticle, implant it maybe in a tumour, and then the radioactivity from the actinium isotope does its trick and hopefully kills the tumour from the inside without getting spread throughout the entire body because it remains contained within the nanoparticle. So that's the whole idea of this, and that is certainly under investigation.
1: Now we're going to skip the next episode of Elemental, Aluminium, and head to Episode 3, Americium. It's another radioactive one, which Mendeleev would have had no idea about.
2: Americium on the periodic table has the chemical symbol AM and an atomic number of 95, which puts it down the bottom of the periodic table. And what I find most interesting about uh, Americium is that it was invented under a cloak of secrecy, but you find it in most homes.
1: Just before we do that story, I am curious about how it got its name. It looks like, when you see it spelt America, even though we pronounce it a little bit differently.
2: Indeed, and the people who discovered this particular element, a very famous uh, American chemist by the name of Glenn Seaborg headed the team. He looked at where it would naturally fit in the periodic table, and the element directly above that is an element called Europium, which we will come across, obviously named after Europe, and so they decided to name this one after America, so hence americium.
1: So it was just a bit of naming one up and shit. That's excellent. So it's <laughs> radioactive. That's like actinium, which we heard from in
2: episode one. Indeed. And this, in fact, is the first synthetic element that we will have hit in our journey across the periodic table, alphabetically anyway, which means it's manufactured in the laboratory, that it doesn't occur naturally. And the way that they make it is they take another element, plutonium, and they bombard that with high energy particles and some stick, and you end up with uh, atoms of americium as a result of that.
1: This history about it, the fact that it's a synthetic element, that it was made in the lab, is that to do with its wartime history?
2: So, yes, this came out as an unexpected result of the Manhattan Project and the Manhattan Project was the Allied effort to develop the atomic bomb, which was dropped on Japan at the end of the war. And in fact, it was discovered in 1944, but it wasn't allowed to be announced until 1947, which was after the war, again, due to all of the secrecy and not wanting the Russians to get in on this and all of the Cold War stuff. And in fact, it was announced not In the normal way that you would expect a scientific uh, result to be announced, normally they get published in journals. This was in fact announced on a children's quiz show where the discoverer of this particular element, Professor Glenn Seaborg, was appearing as a guest. And he told all of the teachers listening that they would have to update their periodic table to include one more element.
1: I wonder what the kids thought of that, whether they realised quite what the significance of it was. <laughs> Indeed, yes. So so this thing was born in war, really. Um, yes. Is it useful? Do we use it now?
2: Well, here's the weird thing, is that it's in most people's homes. Really? really... I don't
1: have radioactivity in my home, (laughs) Alan.
2: (laughs) Yes, is New Zealand really nuclear-free? And the answer to that is no. If you have a look on many smoke alarms, you will see a little radioactive symbol on them. And that is due to the fact that your smoke alarms contain americium.
1: Ah, I have seen that radioactive symbol now you remind me. I did not know that I had americium in my home.
2: <laughs> so, the way that this works these smoke detectors is that americium we've said that this is radioactive and anything that's radioactive gives a high energy particles. Now we're only talking a tiny 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 amount before everybody gets scared that they've got radioactivity in their home. We're talking about 0.3 of a microgram Oh, which that's very small. It's tiny tiny <laughs> tiny. But the way that it works, this sample of americium, in fact it's americium oxide, gives out very, very high energy particles and they interact with uh, molecules in the air and they ionize them. They take electrons off them and that leads to charges and that can then mean that an electric current can flow. Now, if you've got smoke in there as well, then that stops these alpha particles interacting so much with the molecules in the air and ionising them, and it means that any electric current is a lot less in the presence of little particles of soot, smoke, etc., etc.
1: And that's what sets the alarm off.
2: Indeed, and that's why they call them ionisation alarms.
1: Ah, yeah, that all makes sense. Thank you.
2: (laughs) And, uh, by the way, for an interesting fact about americium, they are considering using this as a replacement for very, very, very highly toxic plutonium in spacecraft batteries, obviously if you have a bit of an accident when uh, spacecraft's taking off, you don't want plutonium spread all over the uh, atmosphere. Americium is not quite so nasty as plutonium is.
1: I wonder if they have smoke alarms in spaceships. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, Alan. That's Professor Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology, and he's my co-host on the RNZ podcast Elemental. You can find it at rnz.co.nz chemistry or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Now, of course, Brian Crump from Nights on RNZ is having a very chemical year as well. Listen out each Friday night to his chemistry-inspired Sonic Tonic and Element of the Week. mai koe ki hōtaka e papatuanuku, tangaroa, mei rangi nui. I'm Alison Balance, and this is Our Changing World on RNZ. Now tonight's excerpt from the Kākāpō Files podcast is from episode 11, Island Rangers. Saving Kākāpō was quite the team effort, and I'm going to catch up with four of the island rangers who are hard at work on Whenua Hau, Codfish Island.
3: Yeah, I'm Barney, so I'm one of the temp rangers. been on the team for a couple of weeks and still learning stuff.
1: So how are you finding it out here on Codfish? It's pretty busy.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's been pretty intense and a steep learning curve. At the moment, lots of carrying stuff around, like um, setting up tents and uh, finding nests and a few late nights and monitoring nests from the train station back at base. So what's your chores
1: for today? Do you know
3: yet? Uh, yeah, I'm going out to set up a tent for future night work. Yeah, that's my jobs for today.
1: So it's just creating a nice, comfortable place so that when people are out there at night, they've got somewhere to stay out of the rain, somewhere to sleep.
3: Yep, yeah, that's the that's the idea, yeah.
1: So it's basically a gear-carrying day, by the sound of it?
3: Yep, yeah, and then I'll come back and carry on looking at feed-out, make sure everyone's getting fed the right amounts and getting regular weights and stuff, as I'm in charge of that at the moment. So,
1: so you've got the volunteers who are actually doing the legwork on the hill for that one, who actually take the, carry the food around, and you, you're just making sure that everything's going swimmingly.
3: Yep, that's right, and working out if they're getting the right amount of food, so we're not putting out too much or not enough. If the birds are getting hungry, make sure they're at good weights so to keep them healthy. Yep. Yeah.
1: So is there a, a perfect weight for a kākāpō to be at?
3: We're doing a range for the females between 1.6 and 1.7 or 8. Yeah, so that makes sure we're getting the right ratio of males to female um, chicks. And with the males at the moment, because they're spending a lot of time booming, we're trying to just keep them as big as possible without being too big so that the harness still fits. Thanks, Brownie.
1: Good morning, Freya. Morena. Good I need to meet some more of the Island Rangers, so can you introduce yourself? (laughs) I sure can. My name's Freya, and I'm a -a Cockleball
4: Ranger. I've been working for the team for the last two and a half years and living on this island is bliss.
1: (laughs) So for the last two and a half years you've been building up to this breeding season.
4: Yeah, pretty much. 2016 was a big one, but this one's even bigger. So it's been nice to have a bit of time to prep and get ourselves mentally and physically prepared for the task.
1: (laughs) So what are some of the jobs you've got on today?
4: Well, today I am acting as what we call camp mum. So I'm arranging all the flights that get to the island, all the food and everything that basically needs to be here for us to function. So at the moment I've just found out I've ordered 168 kgs of food to supply and basically help everyone get through the amount of work we've got to do.
1: (laughs) So when's that food arriving?
4: Today. (laughs) So we're going to have to get our arms in and get carrying up the beach, so that'll be fun.
1: Now tell me how people and food arrive on this island.
4: So today we have food and people arriving on a fixed wing plane, it carries about four people, but um, in the next week we might get a helicopter out as well if the weather doesn't get so good, and we'll get people and food and gas out like that as well.
1: So the plane lands on the beach. The plane lands on a lovely runway. <laughs> what preparation do you have to do for that?
4: Well, Margie this morning has actually gone out and drawn a runway for us, so this is where we zigzag up and down the beach, making sure we draw a line between the hard and soft sand, um, and at the point of the hard sand, basically, is where the plane can land. We also report in all the weather conditions. And today is stunning. No wind, beautiful blue skies, there are no white caps, so it's less than 20 knots of wind. It's fantastic.
1: So it's a good day at uh, Fenuahu International Airport. <laughs> exactly so you've done the shopping you've organised the transport what else are you going to do today?
4: well I've now got to prepare the flights for the next two weeks because we've got flights coming on pretty much every two days at the moment so uh, lots of people arriving on the island lots of people going off the island so I've got to prepare for that and then hopefully get ready tonight to go up to CNS, hopefully <laughs> You were at a nest last night? I was at a nest last night. I was at Poonamu's nest. She's mated with Gulliver, which is very exciting. He's a Fiordland bird. Uh, But she decided to stay on the nest all night. So I'm going to hopefully go back tonight and have a bit more luck.
1: So the purpose of your visit last night was to do what?
4: So we don't know what she's got in her nest yet so we're hoping to see what's in there. I'm hoping at least two eggs at the moment. She's been incubating for about seven days and then we're going to candle those eggs and see whether they're fertile or not and then if they are fertile which we really really hope they will be we'll bring them back to the hut and get them incubating in some of those incubators and get them all ready to roll before they hatch.
1: So when you go up at night to check on a nest Talk me through what happens. What's the process?
4: So when we usually get there, we have well, we have quite a setup at a nest. Um, we have a nest snark, which tells us whether the female is present or absent on a nest. Um, and we go to the tent site and we set up a camera so that we can see her and see whether she is on the nest. We then go to sleep, hoping that we get a good night's rest.
1: So you got a tent there as we well. We got a
4: tent there. <laughs> it's a very flash tent site at Panama's as well, so it's very lovely. And then we wait and hope that the female will leave the nest. Then we have back at the hut a nest controller who is basically getting all this information back from the nest to tell us whether the female is present or absent. The nest controller then calls up us and tells us whether she's left the nest and when she leaves the nest we scuttle on down to the nest and we're able to get in there, see see those eggs and candle them and then put them back and hopefully get back to our tent site before the female even returns. And so she never knows we're there. So your days are quite
1: and your nights are quite varied. <laughs> quite varied. Yeah, you could definitely say that. It definitely keeps the job interesting. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very much. Nice no to meet you, Fred. I'm going to pop across the other side of the office now. I've got <laughs> one more person to catch up
0: with. <laughs> Say hi to my people. <laughs>
1: can I get you to to introduce yourself?
0: Oh, kia ora um, Alison, my name's Margie Grant, so I'm one of the um, rangers that has been brought on because of the advent of this anticipated huge breeding season, I was brought on in July with two other rangers, and I've got a year-long to a a year-and-a-half-long contract. So I've joined the team and been immersed in the madness of the culture here and the busyness, and uh, finding my way through everything, which is hilarious, uh, exhausting and fun.
1: (laughs) So what are some of the jobs that you're responsible for?
0: Well, everything. The good thing about the here, working as a ranger is an enormous variety and the skills that you pick up so today um, at the moment I'm just entering data that um, I've been out for the last few days doing things like listening to the outputs on the birds transmitters which tells us a lot about their state of activities which lets us know things like if they're nesting or they're not nesting and what what state they might be in so I've been entering those and other um, other data because data informs pretty much most of the, all the primary decisions we make here. I see a
1: lot of people sitting at a lot of
0: computers a lot of the time <laughs> yes, <we're, laughs> it's like we've got some good people here who go around reminding us that we need to be entering data.
1: <laughs> so you've got some data entries to do. What yeah. else are you going to do today?
0: Oh, as far as I've been out getting walking the beach, refueling the generator because that runs a lot of the time at the moment because we have um, because we've got incubators going, we run the generator a lot to keep up with the power demands and the power demands of so many people here. Taking stuff out for the plane. I'm the gear master at the moment, so there's a lot of gear going up the hill when. We are finding nests That means that we have to put a lot of technology out To um, for to support what we're observing at the nest And managing the eggs there and the birds And also um, as Freya said There's some rather nice camps set up So that we can do that comfortably overnight And not have to sit out in the wet if it's raining to do that So um, I help manage all that gear And also the repairs on it And deciding where it goes and how we move it around Because uh, we don't have unlimited gear So there's a nice little jiggle juggle going on Between priorities at times So those will be my main things today like Freya and the other rangers, I'm out in the field a lot, day and night, but um, today, so far, I'm hiding away in here, hoping to get a chance to do the data entry and do the gear, organise the gear stuff before I get grabbed for something outside. So, yeah, so yeah, and talking to you. It's all part of the job. Yeah. I'll let you get back to data entry. Yeah, fantastic to talk to you,
1: thanks. So that was a typical morning with the rangers on Whenua Ho. Now, we heard mention of some nocturnal ranger activity – Being Nest Controller and staffing a piece of computerware known as the train station, let's find out more. Knock, knock. I've come in to find out what you're doing. I
5: am hunting for cables.
1: You're hunting for cables, but that's not your real job for the night. Can I get you to introduce yourself? I'm Anton. (laughs) So what's your role here?
5: Mainly working with the database that um, they have in place. There's been a team in Wellington building a new database for the Kākāpō team and um, I'm tasked with helping them familiarise themselves with the database and get it working well for them, yeah.
1: And you're doing another job tonight as well on the side?
5: Yes, I'm the nest controller for the night, which means I basically pay attention to all the signals coming into the hut and watch for any activity at the nests and then contact people who are near the nests, potentially stealing eggs or checking up on those eggs.
1: So I think Deirdre and Andrew are both up the hill
5: tonight? Yep, so Andrew's doing a solo mission up the hill. Um, unfortunately we can't get the signals from the nest he's at, so he's all alone um, and Deirdre is with two others and we we do have um, the signals for her nest.
1: So so whose nest
5: is she at? She's at Bella's nest. Yep. So I think the intention might be to take the last egg from, from Bella.
1: So this job that you have is, is made possible because everything up in the hill is automated, isn't it?
5: Yeah, it's hard to get everything connected um, on the island, uh, but um, when it does work, it works pretty well. Yep.
1: So what happens if a female kākāpō, she's sitting on her nest, she decides to get off?
5: We get notified that she's left her nest, and uh, if she's off for too long, we, we can take action if required.
1: So is this a job that keeps you up all night?
5: No, not really. So the system alerts us with a loud sort of alarm when bad things happen, so we can usually get some sleep.
1: So females who are sitting on eggs up the hill still, you'll get notified, there we go, right on cue, the doorbell rings, so what does that mean?
5: That just means something's happened at one of the nests, so if we have a look. So a ding-dong has gone at Bella's nest, and so that's the nest that Deidre is at. So potentially the sensor will soon tell us that Bella has left her nest.
1: Well, they were hoping that Bella might leave by about 10 o'clock. So she's uh, spot on, seven minutes to 10. But if
5: she's gone off, she'll have gone off, what, to feed? Yep, to feed, and then she'll want to come back eventually. So she might go off for, you know, half an hour or something. That green means she's there, and those blue dots show her activity levels. So they're pretty low, generally speaking. But see, her activity levels just popped up there, and the ding dong has gone off. So that sort of suggests she's, there's activity. DD from base over. Hi, D. Uh, the ding dong at uh, Bella's nest went off a couple of minutes ago. She hasn't left her nest officially, but it might happen in a couple of minutes. And I'll let you know if the situation changes. Just keeps going until you stop it. <laughs> yep, Bella has officially left the nest, over.
1: So Bella went off tonight, but Deirdre was up there last night and she didn't leave the
5: nest. That's right. So Deirdre stayed in a bivy bag all night.
1: Just in case.
5: Yeah. So sometimes it doesn't work out so well.
1: So Bella's eggs are infertile, is that right? Or are they fertile and they're being brought down here to incubate?
5: Yep, so Bella's fertile.
1: Yep. Okay, so that'll be coming down here and going into the incubator room? Yep. Mm-hmm. So Deirdre will be walking down the hill very carefully.
5: Yes, hopefully.
1: And a very big thanks to Anton and all the rangers from the Department of Conservation's Kākāpō recovery team, including Bryony, Freya, and Margie. And I'm pleased to report that Deirdre safely got Bella's egg down the hill and into the incubator. A quick update on numbers for you. More than 200 kākāpō eggs have been laid so far on both Ho and Anchor Island. More than 40 chicks have hatched, and growing numbers of those are being fostered back to wild mums. There's still plenty of booming and mating going on on Ho, so there'll be more nests and eggs to come. That was an excerpt from episode 11 of the Kākāpō Files, Island Rangers. You can find the full episode at rnz.co.nz kākāpō. Or to make life simple, I am also posting all the episodes of both the Kākāpō Files and Elemental on the Our Changing World podcast feeds and webpage rnz.co.nz slash our changing world. A quick heads up that sea week Kopapa Moana runs from the second to the tenth of March. The theme is Tiakina or Tato Moana, care for our seas. Do stay in touch with us. We're on Twitter and Facebook as RNZ Science. Thanks for your company. But for now, it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Paul Marier. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if
4: Botox Cosmetic is right for you.
2: For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300.
1: Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name.